It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Never in the field of human conflict have so many been so deliberately obtuse and ridiculous. Never before have we seen so many people asking so many questions with so little intelligence, such blatant abandon for common sense and with a flagrant disregard for the bleeding obvious. Yesterday, Prime Minister Boris Johnson released a 50-page document entitled Our Plan to Rebuild. He made a statement in the House of Commons. He answered questions from Keir Starmer and other MPs about the plan to ease our way out of lockdown for over an hour. He then shared the press briefing at 7pm where he took more questions from members of the public and the media and where he also outlined the government's strategy for the next phase of dealing with the pandemic. And yet The Guardian this morning quotes the leader of the opposition uh, saying Boris is providing no clear direction on lockdown exit. Exactly which part of all this do they not get? Exactly what is it that they need? Exactly what does the highly qualified QC Keir Starmer think the British public can't work out for themselves? You know what happens next, don't you? The Guardian is going to go into the bin, as it has before and as it probably will do again. The people, quite frankly, are sick to death of pseudo-intellectuals from Putney and from, you know, the Human Rights Commission telling us that we can't understand simple instructions that tell you what you can do when you go out, when you can go out, who you can go out with, and when you can come home again. For God's sake, when people start asking questions about what to do if they meet a friend by accident in a public park, it's time to pull up the drawbridge and leave the idiots outside the moated castle to be eaten by the lions, isn't it? I mean, for heaven's sake, yesterday I called them all Charlies and Nincompoops. I'm afraid those names still apply. 0344 499 1000. Luckily, uh, the listeners to this show are inured with slightly more common sense than these lefty doom-mongers who seem to want an answer to everything written down for them. Sky's Beth Rigby last night opened, opined rather that there were still a lot of complicated questions that needed answering, shortly before disappearing off to make a load of them up. We will bring you the latest news from the front line with Rishi Sunak, Charlotte Ivers, our political correspondent, and government communications specialist Lucian Hudson. Plus, we'll be checking in with Gemma Godfrey, at times money mentor as well. 0344 499 1000. And for our homeschooling section today, we'll be learning about how to forecast the weather, which we haven't always had a great record at doing, to be honest. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Now, yesterday we took a slightly more ridiculous line on the fact that people kept saying they couldn't understand the phrases stay alert. Up in Scotland, of course, and in Northern Ireland and in Wales, they've got very different views of the word stay alert. Apparently, Nicola Sturgeon is now preferring to use the phrase stay vigilant, which isn't all that different. They're using stay alert over in France. One of the happier moments of watching um, Laura Kunzberg last night on the BBC briefing session when she asked a question about uh, Boris Johnson and he ended it with, actually, the words stay alert uh, are being adopted in France as well. You've never seen such a flounce, as we used to call it in Scotland, where she shuts her laptop, pulls the uh, headphones out of her ears, the uh, earbuds, and storms off shortly then to leave the press briefing with the BBC and focus instead on herself. I think that tells you all you need to know about what is wrong with modern television media right now. Let's talk to Lucian Hudson, former head of government uh, communications, now working with Thinking the Unthinkable. Lucian, a very good morning to you. Very good morning to you, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, you were always a voice of calm, a voice of reason, a voice of common sense. Are you having any trouble understanding what the government is suggesting that we do? I have no trouble understanding the government's strategy, which I think is very clear and credible and is actually what is needed at this stage. Mm. Uh, I am somewhat uh, bemused that there, there has been such criticism of it from different quarters, uh, the opposition, um, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, and of course many sections of the media. Uh, and I would just say this, in the first phase we could just talk about avoiding COVID. Yeah. Uh, in this phase, we're still avoiding it, but we're also getting people used to the idea that until we have an effective vaccine or drug treatment, we actually have to live with COVID. And people understand, I think the broad British public do understand that this is quite complex, that we have to keep controlling the virus and we don't want to risk a second uh, peak but at the same time, we need to ease the restrictions gradually in a phased way so that the economy and society can get moving again. That's not a difficult message. And as you rightly say, uh, the, 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 the French president has spoken about rester prudent, mm. you know, stay careful. Well, you know, that's exactly what's being proposed. It's not a specific action, but it's a way of dealing with the phase that we have to get through in order to absolutely lift the lockdown as and when that's going to be possible to do. Exactly. And also, you'll understand this better than anyone, Lucian, in terms of writing strategy and in terms of coming up with a press, uh, a public relations strategy as well, so that everybody feels relatively safe. They feel as though the government knows what it's doing. The government cannot be too specific about too many things. You know, for example, as I said, when I saw that guy getting up yesterday, the first member of the public, to ask a question, what do I do if I see somebody that I know uh, in a public park but I didn't know they were going to be there? Should I go home? Well, I'm sorry, the government can't give you instructions on something like that. The government can give you a rough idea of how you should behave and then you act accordingly, surely? Exactly. I think what we need is a combination, which we're getting, of clear and specific guidance. Precise enough, but not so precise as to not give us the benefit of exercising our own judgment, our own common sense. It also depends hugely on people beginning to think through what they would do in different situations. Mm. And no government can anticipate every single eventuality. What it can do is work with business and work with schools, as the government is doing, to make sure 
that those places are safe, are COVID secure, as the Prime Minister said. Yes. The, and I think it's very interesting that the government has put out so much information to support the slogans, a seven-page document that the public can read. It also put out a 50-page recovery strategy. It's given guidelines to employers, and we'll hear from the Chancellor later about what's going to become of the furlough scheme. The guidelines for employers are really sound. Yeah. They urge employers over a certain number to make sure that their risk assessments urge employers to work with their unions, where there are unions, making sure that the public is protected when it goes to work, but also has to use its own judgment. That must be healthy. We cannot stay in a situation where the government has to dictate every single step. We have to get back to a position where we recover our freedoms, exercise our responsibilities, and we take the guidance that the government is offering for the whole country. Yes. Not and just for England, but for the whole of the UK. Well, exactly and that's right. precisely what the Prime Minister is providing here. Well, I did want to ask you about the kind of um, uh, the deselection of, of, of the various uh, countries outside of England, i.e. Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. I mean, you'd have to say, even if you were not of a cynical nature, that there's something political going on here, that the SNP are seeing an operation whereby they can separate themselves from mainland Britain, basically, and make out that they are a separate entity, which they are not in the end. Well, the Prime Minister, I think, um, put it exactly right in the Commons yesterday in saying that when it comes to the nations, there's more that unites than divides. Mm. So I think what's interesting over the past 48 hours is the extent to which people are trying to make more of the differences when actually the broad strategy is the one that the UK government is putting forward. The quiet question to the critics is what's the alternative? Yeah. What would you put in its place? Now, it was Nicola Sturgeon two weeks ago that started to talk about exit strategies, talked about treating people like adults. That's exactly what the government is doing. It's coming up with a plan, recognising that plan will need to be adapted, recognising that we can't move forward on certain steps until we've, we've, we've actually controlled the virus and brought it down, not risking the spread of the virus again. But those leaders who are looking are critical of the government at the moment need to think about what direction, what leadership they would give as and when their people, their public, asks them what next. And I think everyone will fall back on this strategy. It's only a matter of time. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And the trouble with an awful lot of what goes on uh, around the economy, and we expect to hear from Rishi Sunak, as you say, later on. We also expect to hear from Grant Shapps, who's going to publish new guidance on getting to work safely. There will be an augmentation with, with each day that goes forward uh, to the plan, because obviously the plan has to be movable. It has to be agile. It has to react to, to the way that the, the, the virus, you know, rolls itself out and moves into different directions. But, for example, Matt Hancock, this morning made a very good point when he was talking about the cleaners uh, of, of this country and people, you know, who are kind of rather sneering middle class types saying, oh, yeah, it's all about helping the Tories so they can get their houses clean. And he said, no, it's about people who, who do cleaning for a living, who need to get back to work because they can't make money unless they're doing their jobs. And that is entirely correct. Well, precisely. And he was emphasising that, you know, we needed to keep the two metre distance. Yep. We need to keep cleaning hands, surfaces, so that personal hygiene, workplace hygiene is really important. I, I suspect we need to make sure that employers do invest enough in the cleaning. 
But ultimately, we want to start getting back to a way of life that makes the economy productive and allows us to enjoy the freedoms we normally enjoy, but not at the expense of public health. And that's why the UK government is right to emphasize that they have to strike a very difficult balance, one driven by the data, driven by the science, but also by public health. And what do you make of Keir Starmer's performance? Because I thought it ridiculous that he made his kind of response to Boris Johnson's speech on Sunday night last night, shortly before Boris Johnson gave another press briefing, because in between the two events, that he'd also been questioning Boris Johnson in the House of Commons. It seemed to me if he was going to be an effective politician, and I'm quite happy for him to be that, obviously, in a democracy, surely he should have waited until today to give his response to all of the things that Boris Johnson had said. Well, uh, um, it's difficult to read precisely where um, the leader of the opposition, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, wants to end on this. He, he started off saying he wanted to work with the governments constructively. He wanted consensus. Uh, indeed, all the politicians, I think, are all saying that they want a consensus. But it takes two to tango. Now, a leader of the opposition is absolutely right to ask the pertinent questions. I think whether it's Keir Starmer or anyone else, sarcasm and satire are not a substitute for strategy. Yeah. So if any critic does think that the strategy, the basic strategy, the substance of the strategy is wrong, they should call it out and suggest something else. They're not doing that. What they're, all, what they're playing on is, is always is at the stage process, which is what did the prime minister say when and to whom with what degree of detail? Well, I think there has been a lot more details than Sunday. Yeah. Uh, Sunday did need that. One needed to just suspend uh, a lot of questions until we got more of the answers in the Commons, and rightly so. Um, but at the end of the day, the opposition can and should challenge the government, mm -hmm. should make sure that the government has a strategy that's properly implemented. But I think it has to be a, a little careful that it's not contributing to a restlessness that is actually nothing to do with the government. It's to do with our collective sense of where are we going next? Why can't we be more certain about the future? And no government can answer that question at the moment. All a government can do is give us enough guidance, uh, enough encouragement in the right direction, and to keep reminding us that we have to go on what the science reveals to us. Mm. And that's a changing picture. And as long as that is, we have that continued uncertainty, yes, there will be more questions. But we need to live with that uncertainty until we have a vaccine or a drug treatment or until we're really sure that we've seen off the virus. And that moment is not yet. That's why I think everybody, the whole, it, 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 it turns on everyone, I think, to exercise that degree of restraint and patience. Otherwise, we're going to be picking holes, scoring points, when actually the broad strategy has been followed and supported and with a lot of cooperation rather than just compliance. And that's all to the government's credit, yes. but also to the credit of the opposition, the trade unions, business, everyone as a stake in making sure that the strategy works. Exactly, because everybody supposedly should want everything to get back to as best normal can be uh, as soon as we can possibly do it safely. But it seems to me at times there are those who are putting uh, roadblocks in the way of anything uh, which is called progress. You know, for example, when Beth Rigby says, well, there's still a lot, of un a lot of complicated questions that need answering, shortly before going away to decide what those complicated questions might be so you can put them to the next minister that stands up in front of her, you start to think, well, no matter what they say, somebody's going to have a question about it. 
fantastic. If you said, look, you can meet both parents uh, in a field somewhere, uh, as long as they stand, stand two metres apart, they'd say, well, why does it have to be in a field? You know, why can't you meet them in, in, a, in a restaurant? You know, there's always going to be more questions, and I think the time has now come for some of those questions to not be answered. And for, for I, I wonder, about, and you're a strategist here, whether the press briefing on a daily basis is necessary anymore. Well, I think it's difficult not to carry the media with you, but I think it's very interesting, isn't it, that if we took last night's briefing, the public can reach the same questions as the media yes. and, and actually put them in a way that's even more concise and gets to the point. Um, I think we do need the media, and the media, many parts of the media, have done a, a really good job, including on this programme. I think Thank you. What, what people need to appreciate is that this constant restlessness for what's the next step, what we're going to do, exactly how. You, know, you can ask the question, but where does it go? And I think The Guardian, certainly in its uh, coverage today, is utterly wrong yeah. to say that the government's not giving clear direction. It is. To ask the government to give any clearer direction is to actually get ourselves in a position where the government's being over-prescriptive yeah. at the very time that we need people to use their judgment and discretion within a very clear framework. And I'd say this, and, and this is someone who's uh, you know, very, very experienced in drawing up campaigns and strategies, communication strategies. What the government is trying to achieve in a few days in terms of getting people to have to understand where we are and what the mindset needs to be in the, in the months and weeks and months ahead is usually achieved by many public health campaigns over months and years. And yet we want it all done and dusted in the course of 48 hours. So I think there just needs to be a realism that you know, the government does need to put out some messages and, and, and actually the, the government has been praised for the simplicity of messages it's used during the first phase of the lockdown. Yeah. But we're now in a more complex situation. And that means that we can't just specify a lot of actions. We have to get, to get people thinking about the principles that underpin those actions and get people to think through for themselves, employers, trade unions and others, what exactly they would do that would comply with the government guidance. Yes, exactly right. And I think we ought to be looking at sort of, you know, what you might call creative solutions for working practices, because there's no question that some working practices are going to have to change. And, and we mentioned, as you did at the start of, of, of this conversation, that many companies have already consulted with the government as to how they will be using their office space. I mean, in my own office here, you know, things have been very, very largely changed around. There's very few people working here, but they've now started to put distancing mats down on the floor. So that if yeah. and when people do return in greater numbers, there will be very very clear guidelines as to how many people can be in one particular space. And I think a lot of companies will do that, and a lot of companies should do that. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it is difficult. I mean, I think that's why I think the government should not get wound up or get tetchy, even in the face of provocation. Um, mm. of, and it, it, it's understandable, but it needs to hold a space in the, at the moment where people generally don't know where to focus their anger or their restlessness. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a virus that none of us could quite understand and is still with us, and we don't know when it'll end. So the best the government can do is try and get us all to see you know, what the evidence is, what the uh, scientific assessment is of that, and balance that with all sorts of other considerations, which of course include getting the economy moving again and protecting our way of life. 
And we will not have a strong NHS without a strong economy. So we can't put off the moment where government does have to pull back and the country has to generate its own income. It can do so for a time, and rightly so, but it can't do so permanently. Mm. And it can't give false assurances where none are available. We can make you know, workplace and schools secure enough, but we can't guarantee total security. Or if we do, then we're no further advanced than we are now. Mm. And that's, the t- that's a tough choice a tough set of choices that I think the government is encouraging us to think through, and rightly so. Absolutely right. Couldn't put it better myself. Lucien, thank you very much. As ever, Lucien Hudson, former head of government communications, now working with thinking the unthinkable with some very wise words and some very wise predictions for what has to happen in the future. The trade unions, the companies of this country, the individuals of this country, plus the government, plus everybody who has ever done anything in this world in terms of a job, in terms of raising money for things, should all be pulling together, should all be understanding what it is that the government is doing. It's not difficult. It really isn't difficult. Please call me, 0344 499 1000. I'd particularly love to hear from anyone who disagrees with me, who says, actually, I'm very confused because I want to know precisely what you are confused about. There's a brilliant piece of uh, video footage doing the rounds on Twitter uh, since yesterday of a plumber being interviewed uh, by Hugo Rifkin from The Times, asking him whether he understands what it is that Boris Johnson's instructions mean. And he's very, very clear about it. He says, well, absolutely, of course, it's very clear. Everybody understands it. The only people who don't understand it are those who willfully are not understanding it for political purposes. We are live streaming on YouTube, uh, on Twitter and on Facebook. You can, of course, contact us throughout the show on Twitter as well, at Talk Radio, at IROMG. We'll take your calls next, right here on Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And don't forget, we are now uh, live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter as well. So uh, if you need to watch us as well as uh, listening to us, which is a thing of great beauty. And we're going to be adding some, uh, uh, what can only be described as augmentations very shortly. So the screen that you see is going to be even better and bigger and more uh, rambunctious uh, than ever then that's what you need to look out for. It could be uh, early next week. It might even be before that. Who can say? We're currently working on a secret plan, uh, which I cannot reveal any more about for fear of being shot. Let's talk to Richard, who's in Manchester. Hello, Richard. Champion this morning. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, How are you doing? Yes, I'm doing very well, thanks. I've just been out to do a little bit of shopping. Good man. Um, I'm picking up on this... um, uh, on this Nicola Sturgeon thing and, and the Welsh and the Irish all... Can I oh, say yeah. ganging, ganging up together to try and get what they want and using political uh, the climate at this moment in time? Yes. And I'm a, pr- I'm a bit disgusted with it, Mike. What, what I want you to do, what I want you to do, I'd love you to do it, is get them all on the radio. Yes. All these doubters, all those people that uh, spent three and a half years trying to keep us in the EU, they're all synonymous with what is going on at the moment. And could we ask them, you know, why did the 17.4 million people who voted to leave, what do they think they're going to do when they think they're going to get whatever they want? Because there's nothing they can do. Yes. Because we've got an 18 majority now, and I was a socialist, and now I'm proud that I voted for Boris. Do you know why? Why? Because he's going to bring us out of it, Mike. Yep. He's got, he, and and no, other, no other government I don't care who they are, could have done anymore. And it's just like America, this. It's just what's happening to Trump. 
my own sister, on a personal basis, won't speak to me anymore because of Trump. Really? No, I did. No, I did. Said I said, give him a chance. Yeah. Give the guy a chance. Oh, it's extraordinary. It's honestly, honestly, she didn't speak to me anymore. Well, I mean, maybe that's a good thing. You know, sometimes uh, these things are sent to try us. But on on the other hand, if you're all you're going to do is argue, you know, you're better off not bothering. I quite agree with you. But something's got... I don't know what these people, the Heseltines, the people you've had on your programme, yes. you know, time after time in the tent or whatever you called it outside in our fight against them, and we, and we won. But yes. they won't give up. No, you know they won't, they give, won't up. give up, Mike? They won't give up because they've got all the money. They've got everything. They don't need... They're not like the people who are on, on the benefits and all that. So they don't need it. So they can talk big. Well, it doesn't go down with me. Well, it's like all these people moaning about the cleaners going back to work. They're all saying, oh, yeah, it's because the Tories want their houses clean. No, it's not. It's because we want to give the cleaners the ability to make the money that keeps them alive. You're quite right. Mike, I admire you so much. You keep to the same mantra all the time. You never deviate. Get, do me a big favour. Get Alistair Campbell on and really give him a roast in. <laughs> I'll do it soon. Don't worry. Thank you, Richard. Let's talk to Peter, uh, who's at Le Cochonet in Maiden Vale. Peter, very good morning to you. Hey, hi, Mike. How's it going? Yeah, good man. Not bad at all. How are you, how are you getting on? Uh, well, there's three things I'd like to talk to you about today. Um, thank the heavens we finally got uh, our bounce back loan. It was a oh, week late. It was a week later. I feel it may be too little, too late. But you know, while we're on the subject of that, just while I'm reminded of it, I've got a note yeah. from Rudy about the guy who said he couldn't get himself a business account. Apparently, Starling Bank will give you one uh, if you go to Starling Bank. You, that you can do it on the phone. Uh, well, so that's, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah that's that's, that's one piece of good news. So you know, well, I'm grateful for something to help us keep us afloat for yeah. a while. You know, um, but of course, you've got to remember it is a loan. It's not a stopover handout, so yeah. it's got to be paid back. What's the interest like? Um, it's very good. I think it's uh, I think it's three three or five percent. Oh, that's good. Yeah, Excellent. yeah. I mean, okay. no, the interest rate, rate is absolutely fine. But, um, you know, business is, is OK. It's, it's, it's growing slowly but surely, you know, week on week. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's a funny old thing about people, you know, old habits dying hard. Mm. You know, most of our deliveries and takeaways are still at the weekends. Right. You, think, you know, you think um, with everybody, every, to me, every day seems to be the same. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, do you know what? I ordered a takeaway for the first time last night um, in, in, since the lockdown began, partly because I've been cooking so much food for the old MG's kitchen scenario. Oh, that's I got great. To, I saw well, that. I, I got to the point where, yeah, what do you think of it? I mean, I mean I'm, yeah, you're, very good, actually. you're a professional. Very good. You're a professional. Thank you very much. Um, I enjoyed it. Yeah, so I thought, I quite fancy a curry. You know, and I normally make curries, um, but I just thought, no, I'm going to, and it felt like a, a real treat to actually order in food, you know? And it, and it was like, I mean, normally speaking, I would maybe do it once a month anyway, not a lot. But just, it, just the, the act of ordering somebody else to make the food felt special somehow. So maybe that's what you should encourage people to do. You know, the other day, um, the, the delivery driver didn't make it, so I said, look, I'm going to take it. So I, I, I jumped in the car and right. drove it around, around to... Uh, and the guy was like, oh, we're so glad, you know, we're just trying to help you out. Right. I, mean, I hope it helps. So, you know, people are trying. Yes. But uh, listen, the second point I want to make, furlough. You yeah. know, this furlough drop, uh, it's not good for the hospitality business. I mean, waiting staff already, they can't claim for their tronc earnings. Right. So they're already struggling. Right. I mean, in our business, it's not as though we can say, get back to work, because... No, well, it of looks course. Like it, it looks like I mean, a couple of friends of mine who are similar to you in, in the business in slightly different parts of it have said, look, look, at least this means that we can keep it going for a bit longer because I think the fear was that come the end of June, what do you do then? You I, know, know. I know. I mean, we're looking at July now, the earliest, aren't we, by the sound of it? It looks like it. But, I mean, it looks like now you'll be covered up to September. I know it's not much comfort that it's only 60%, but it's, but it's better than nothing. It is. But, uh, Mike, look, I'm on a mission to help save the hospitality industry. OK. Um, which is on its knees, and I need your help. All right. Now, the government has got 
to severely reduce the burden of VAT in the hospitality sector. I don't know if you know that VAT in different sectors are different throughout Europe. Yes. Um, if you go to the you know, European Union, the average, average sector rate is around sort of 9%, 10%. Right. Ireland dropped theirs to 9% and they've, they've raised it now to 135 and they're still complaining that it's too high. Um, Luxembourg, it's down, it's 3% in Luxembourg. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sweden, back in 2012, reduced their VAT for restaurants from 25% down to 12 mm. and employment went up by 8% compared with a control group of 1%. So yeah. it does really Well, listen, work. I'd be more than happy to launch a campaign because I believe that VAT is out of control. Um, they've changed the rules so much around small business VAT as well. I yeah. mean, I assume that you're not zero rated. You probably claim VAT back as well, but it's a ridiculous... Well, yeah, but you only claim VAT back on things that are VAT rated. Exactly. So food doesn't have VAT on it, so we no. end up being really an unpaid tax collector. Yes. No, it's absolutely cool. ridiculous. The way that VAT is run by HMRC is a joke. I mean, similarly, it's if you zero rate yourself, which is what I did in my business. The original plan was that you build at uh, 20% and you paid the government back at 12%. So it meant that there was a little bit of a leeway there and you exactly. made a little bit of money. They then put it up to 16% and they're about to put it up to 20 So all it's going to be is, a, is an administrative pain in the neck and a piece of red tape that we could all do without. Do you remember way back, Alistair Darling, he reduced that... I'm trying try to forget him. Well, I know, but... But to be fair to him, he, he, he experimented. He reduced that from 17.5%, mm. which it was then, just down to 15. Right. And, you know, I've been, after 35 years, I can tell you from personal experience that that made an appreciable difference to our profitability, okay. just that 2.5%. And, of course, we still pay corporation tax on, our, on a profit. If of course. You make a profit. So I think 5% would save the industry. That's what they need. Yes, I think that's a very, very good good idea. Keep it up, Peter. Get in touch with me on Twitter if you can as well, and, and we'll try and launch something and try and get somebody uh, to support it as well. Uh, Peter, the owner of Le Cochonet in Maida Vale, go and have some pizza. Uh, it's very good indeed. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We've got lots of great tweets coming in, uh, lots of very, very good phone calls as well, because if you do need to vent, if you do need to ask a question, if you just need to tell us how you're doing, uh, this is the place to do it, because we care about the ordinary people of this country. We are not part of any elite. Uh, we will ask the right questions. We will not ask the wrong questions. Uh, when something is clear, we will say it's clear. When something is not clear, we will say it's not clear. And quite frankly, this is um, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, we take no idiocy on board. Uh, we don't allow for it. And if anybody wants to start talking nonsense, we're afraid we'll call them out on it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now it's time to say a very good afternoon to Mr. Dale Vince, a man who has been on this show many times. In fact, he sat in this very studio the last time we talked, I think. Dale, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Good afternoon to you as well. Nice to hear from you. How are you coping down there in the West Country now, so far? Yeah, I'm coping well. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of adapted to the to the lockdown, been doing a lot of work from home. Um, we've had a lot of challenges as an energy company, obviously as a football club as well, but uh, nothing we can't deal with, you know. Yes, indeed. I mean, you've obviously been quite vocal about why you believe the season should restart football-wise. Tell us why you think that. Well, I think that uh, if we can play safely, we should. It's as simple as that. That's what we're here for as a football club. We want to compete. We've got... Uh, you know, maybe 10 games left to complete the season. Uh, you know, our fans want to watch football, even if they watch it remotely. And if we can play behind closed doors, we can stream the games, we can see how that works. And it could also be a dress rehearsal for next season, which has to start at some point and will start behind closed doors for sure. I mean, there does seem to be a kind of reticence in some areas of society for things to get back to as normal as possible. I think we've all accepted that normality... Uh, for most of us is going to be quite a long way off. You know, we're not going to be able to do many of the things that we used to take for granted for probably quite a long time. But are you surprised at the kind of way that the country seems to have gone into this kind of rather odd mode where they can't seem to make up their own minds and they want the government to tell them how to do everything? Mm, yeah, I kind of, I guess I'm not surprised. I mean, everybody uh, handles this situation differently. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, millions of people have been working, you know, particularly yeah. on the front line, and they've been taking the biggest I'm one of of risks. <laughs> yeah. not, not quite on the <laughs> I mean, front I, line, but yeah. I know that uh, I don't get any credit for it, but, you know, I, I've, I consider myself very fortunate, actually, to have been able to do this because I'm very privileged. I have a very good job, and, and it's not at all dangerous or tough. However, I have had to travel to get here. I have had to, you know, I walk past Guy's Hospital every day, um, you know, and I see the people who are, who are waiting to go in for cancer care and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, I'm not unaware of the fact that there are people out there who are very much putting their lives in danger. Yeah, they are. You're right. I mean, millions of people. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're looking at a period of time when life is not like normal. You know, it might be six to eight months, it might be 12 months before there's a vaccine. But in the gap between now, the easing of the lockdown and the appearance of a vaccine, we're going to live a different kind of life. It's going to be a little bit like normal, increasingly like normal, but mm. it will be different. I mean, football is a great example. We won't play in front of crowds, I don't think, before there's a vaccine, before this time next year, probably. And we've got to all ease our way back in. And we've all got different jobs and different outlooks and different family circumstances. And uh, we've just got to ease our way back in and, yeah. we, and, and take some risk. We've got to accept that there will be a risk. And it's all about risk minimization and mitigation. Life is like that. Anyway. Yeah. How do you explain what some people have asked me about sort of a contact sport like football? You know, how is it possible for footballers to not put themselves at risk if somebody's tackling you and you fall on top of somebody or you're both going up for a header and, you know, somebody's head gets cracked open? You know, how is that not uh, quite dangerous? 
Well, it, it is a risk, and the way to uh, manage and mitigate that is with testing of all players uh, and all staff and right. that kind of stuff. So, you know, the whole world of football can be regularly and rigorously tested so that when we start games, we know that nobody has the virus. I mean, there was a UFC uh, um, uh, tournament on Saturday. Was in, it? Yeah, in, in America. Okay. And they did the same thing. They tested everybody. I think uh, one of the fighters came down with it and they took him out of the competition. Okay. Took two out in that case. Obviously, his opponent had to go as well. Right. Um, but, you know, it can be done. I mean, and they've been playing golf over there as well. I think Rory McIlroy was in a tournament. But, I mean, America is not the world's greatest example of caution, is it? <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, the only country in the world that have dealt with this crisis worse than we have is America, actually. Yeah. Although not if you listen to Donald Trump. I mean, I don't know if you saw his press conference last night, but he was basically claiming that America and Germany have got the best <laughs> record of, of deaths per thousand, I think it was. I'm not quite sure how he worked that out, but, you know, that's what he said. Yeah, I think that's a per capita measure in it. There are 300 million people in America, and, yeah. and it, from his perspective, only 80,000 have died so far, and yeah. therefore per capita he's on a par with Germany. Yeah, uh, well, I suppose you can million. argue that, can't you? Yeah, you can, and it's fair. But it's, it's virtually over in Germany, isn't it? They've flattened it, they're easing the lockdown. Yeah. Uh, it's not over in America. No, it's not. And to be fair, they did get it a bit later. But what do you make of the way that we're dealing with this? Um, the, the Premier League, and I know you're not in the Premier League as such, but the Premier League seems to have been a bit sort of, 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 of in a flip-flopping situation for the last few weeks. Yeah, I think that like a lot of people, you know, they're, they're waiting for some guidance from the government as well, because, uh, you know, it has to be OK by the government to get back to sport. That came out on Sunday, didn't it, that uh, from the 1st of June, live sport behind closed doors could be possible mm. if, if conditions in the country, you know, reach the point that that's acceptable. Yeah. So I think Premier League have been waiting for that. We all have actually in the EFL as well. And uh, they've been making their own plans in terms of how they can test, how they control risk and, and that kind of stuff. I think... There's a good chance the Premier League will get it back on early in June, and I hope the EFL will follow mm. uh, shortly after that. Yeah, because presumably you would also be in an agreement that you don't fancy this neutral grounds thing, this idea that you all go to a kind of... Like we all used to when we were kids, you go to some recreation ground and have a sort of five-a-side tournament, and everybody's playing on a different pitch. Yeah, I don't really see the point of it, actually, no. because the risk in a stadium is, uh, is, is very controllable. It's very small. You know, we're talking a stadium that can hold, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 people, and actually what it's holding is 50 or 60 people playing a game of football. I mean, that, you know, there's plenty of social distancing in there, and I don't see the risk of a non-neutral venue. Yes, no, I don't either. Do you ever see a point at which you might have a, a, a crowd which is socially distanced, so that if you had a stadium, I don't know how big your stadium is, but say it holds 12,000 people, could you fill it with, say, 3,000 people and be happy with that? Yeah, I could see that coming as well. I could see that as an interim step. So our stadium's 5,000 people and a typical crowd for us is 3,000. OK. And, uh, you know, fans of, of uh, opposing clubs would probably make jokes that our crowd is socially distanced normally anyway. <laughs> well, I didn't want <laughs> so, to be the person to say that. <laughs> well, I've done it, so there is out there. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, I could see it. You know, we've got like nearly 1,000 season ticket holders, for example, so it might be possible at some point in a few months for the season ticket holders to be right. the only people watching the game. It's now, possible. Yes, indeed. Now, what would you also make of the financial arguments that people have made because I think football clubs sometimes are unfairly treated and I, I'm not going to be very popular for saying this I'm sure with people who have real jobs but you know they're not absolutely overflowing with money because yes they make a lot of money but they pay out a lot of money to their players particularly in the Premier League so I mean you know there was some criticism wasn't there of people furloughing players I think you, you furloughed your players as well you know I, I think that's fair enough I'm not going to attack you for it because you know it keeps your business going 
Yeah, I think the criticisms came uh, when teams in the Premier League were furloughing staff, actually, not players. Yes. Because obviously the furlough money is limited to two and a half grand a month, which yeah. is a drop in the ocean for a player. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought that was wrong. I thought it was unfair. But I think Premier League teams do get attacked quite frequently by the media. You did it at the top of your show. You, <laughs> you, you had a little poke at them for having Range Rovers and well, uh, millionaire that was the lifestyles. Players, you know. Well, that's because, I mean, that was because people like Kyle Walker uh, and various others who seem to have uh, completely lost the plot when it comes to just behaving themselves. It happens. It does. But I think it spills over to clubs and owners as well. And, you know, I think it was Spurs. They furloughed their staff. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. And the purpose of the scheme is to save jobs, to stop redundancy. And I thought it was a perfectly kind of uh, proper thing to do. But, you know, there's a lot of attention on the Premier League. It's different at League Two where we are. Players are paid much less. Uh, but we furloughed staff and players and all of our casuals as well. Right. Uh, because it was the right thing to do. And what is it like <coughs> where you are in your sort of part of the world? Because obviously in London, you get a very skewed vision of Britain and a very skewed vision uh, of the world. And what we've been seeing over the course of the last few weeks is quite a lot of people out and about at the weekends. If the weather's nice, quite a lot of people going back to work in the, in the last two weeks, certainly. The road's getting quite busy. Mm. Um, what's it like <coughs> where you are? Yeah, I've noticed that in the last few days, maybe a week at the most, the roads have started to get busy again. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, I walk out on Rodborough Common uh, most days because, you know, I live on the edge of it. And that's become uh, a busier place mm. as well. You know, but I think, this, you know, the lockdown is kind of... Um, easing itself isn't it people have become uh, more bold more relaxed about the situation and maybe a little bit more bored with being locked down at home and you can see that there's a natural thing to happen yes oh i don't think there's any doubt that about i would say three weekends ago everybody that i know sort of went slightly collectively mad you know at the same time individually you know i was talking to people that were going yeah i'm really fed up today i don't know why you know there's that kind of psychological effect that you think something is coming to an end and when you don't know whether it's coming to an end um, it, it becomes incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I felt like that yesterday, and I don't know why, but I felt I think in, we all in, do inexplicably grumpy. Yeah, no, listen, we all we, we we all do. Now, showing how much I have moved on from my positions of previous encounters that you and I have had, I know that you want to talk about how uh, the world should change as a result of all this. So I'm I'm actually going to let you have a go and say all that. Uh, despite the fact that I probably will disagree with almost all of it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, look, the, uh, I would say this. The, uh, the virus crisis has been very real, very in our faces. You know, we can see it as a threat to life and limb. The climate crisis is no less big. In fact, it's, it's a much bigger problem that we face that will endure for um, probably hundreds of years if we get it wrong. And it will make the whole world um, difficult to live in. It's a very much bigger problem. Um, so I just want to say this, that uh, our, our Chancellor committed $330 billion this year to fighting the, the uh, virus mm. crisis, and we've all endured this incredible change to the way we live, this lockdown, to kind of keep ourselves safe. At the, at the other side of this, <clears throat> I want us to take just a fraction of that and focus it on the climate crisis, because $330 billion is a 10-year budget to take the country carbon neutral. It's one-third of everything we need to spend to fight the climate crisis. We don't need to spend that every year. We can spend a fraction of it. And the lockdown, the change to the way we live, we don't need anything as dramatic as that. We just need to make incremental changes to how we power our homes, how we travel and what we eat. If we do all of that, we can fight the climate crisis. It looks less of a threat to us at the moment, to many of us at the moment, but it's actually a bigger threat than this virus. But hasn't it also been slightly reduced in terms of the crisis that we were in because of the fact that so few... Um, you know, emissions are being made currently around the world, that there's hardly any flying going on, there's very little car driving going on, the price of oil has basically plummeted, I think it was in the negative a couple of weeks back. Um, and I've seen people writing pieces 
from a sympathetic point of view, you know, people who are into the kind of things that you are, saying that, you know, we've seen what great effect something like this can have over two months. Imagine what it would be like, you know, if we could keep it going. Well, presumably that means that it wasn't that bad in the first place. I don't think it means it wasn't that bad in the first place because the lockdown has been severe, hasn't it? It's been a, you know, a brutal shutdown of life as we know it. And to fight climate change, we don't need to, to go as far as that. It's the biggest drop in carbon emissions in history mm. that we've recorded uh, already. Uh, but, you know, that will start to reverse itself as the lockdown uh, lifts. I mean, it's, it's a very severe problem, climate change. And if we don't deal with it, then we'll regret it for a very long time because there's no vaccine for it and you cannot socially distance to avoid it. No, I get all that. But, I mean, I think we have to first take care of this situation, do we not? And, I mean, the fact that as a side issue or as a side effect of what we are having to go through currently, um, positions that you have complained about in the past have, have become less bad, surely that's a good thing. But they're only less bad because everything's locked down. Yeah. Uh, what we've got to yeah, do... Yeah, but, I mean, I wouldn't be going... I mean, I normally would have been going to see my mother on a plane by now, so I've already do, done two less flights, <laughs> and we're, we're, we're only in May. I mean, I was going to go and see her, actually, at the beginning of this month in New York. Um, I don't know when I'm going to be able to do that. Yeah, understood. And I think, you know, the airline industry is facing that very uncertain future. But on the other side of this, we've got to rebuild our economy. That's something we have to do. And it's also a great opportunity because we can rebuild it as a green economy. We can take this opportunity and actually come out of it in the right mode to fight the climate crisis. We can create jobs and all that kind of stuff, but we can just do it in a greener, sustainable way than we've been doing it. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, because, for example, the Green Party, I think, are being rather unwise at the moment in the London Assembly. They're saying they're calling for uh, Sadiq Khan to, to put the ULEZ charge back on, bring the congestion charge back in, because there's too many people driving to work in a car. Now, it turns out that the government advice is uh, don't use public transport if you can use a car. So, you know, obviously we, we're, we're wrestling with two different beasts here. Yeah, that's right. They're two different problems because normally we'd be saying use public transport, you know, uh, drive down emissions, that kind of stuff. Yeah, You're yeah. right. I mean, that, that thing is, is completely the opposite. But uh, all of the changes we need to make are totally within our grasp. We have the technology. We have the means to do that. It's just about building a new economy. It's, it's like the, the next industrial revolution. It's going to be a green one. Well, listen, you weren't as extreme as I thought you were going to be, so I found myself actually agreeing with some of it, which is a shocking state of affairs. But listen, thanks, Dale. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. Dale Vids there, the owner of Ecotricity and Forest Green Rovers, uh, telling us that we can use this as an opportunity. I, you know, this is clearly not my, um, shall we say, my priority. My priority is that we get back to work, we get the economy moving. Uh, we get, if we have to get back onto aeroplanes to do that, then let's do it. Uh, then we can think about the climate uh, if you so much care about it. But quite frankly, at the moment, it certainly would not be anything that would be on my agenda anywhere near the top 10. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Rishi Sunak currently uh, talking about the furlough scheme in the House of Commons. We'll bring you uh, the news from that as soon as we have it, of course. Right now, though, it is just after 12.30 and it's time for our uh, very, very favourite feature here on the Independent Republic. And it's the homeschooling section. So get your children around the radio uh, and see what we can learn. Uh, today, from John Hammond, Director of Weather Trending, uh, we talked to him an awful lot about the weather. He's going to tell us how uh, they predict the weather. John, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. And, I'm uh, delighted. Afternoon. Delighted. Oh, just that you afternoon can... here. Yeah, I mean it's very nice here. It's a little chilly. I can't believe that we've got so much um, sort of difference in temperature from say Saturday to today. But I guess you might be able to explain that uh, to us. But I suppose we're not quite yet in the early part of summer. We're still in spring, aren't we? 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, you're right. It's been an incredible spell over the last few days. This is what happens in spring, of course. You've got two sort of conflictions going on between polar air, which is still trying to come down from from the Arctic, and uh, further south over the continent, things are heating up. And where those two air masses collide, and it quite often collides across the UK, that's where you get these fluctuating temperatures from day to day, and exactly what we've seen over the, over the last week or so. Mike. Yes, exactly right. I was talking to my sister and my mother over in Connecticut uh, at the weekend, and they, oh, they're having quite yeah. a cold spell at the moment as well. Because normally in May, I remember from living there, that was the month where they'd open up the golf courses. You know, they'd sort of get very close to um, uh, Labor Day and all that kind of thing, Memorial Day, and that whole summer season. And basically, um, you would start to be wearing, you'd start to find yourself wearing, you know, polo shirts and stuff mm. out in the open air. Well, I, I know we've got a lot to get through, but just on that subject, actually, yeah, the, the, the reason we've got it so chilly now and, and why they've had it so cold in the last few days across the northeastern states is linked, actually. And, and the reason is, all winter we've had a really, really strong jet stream, and that's kind of penned the really cold air in across the Arctic and not allowed it to escape. But now what's happened is that that is now suddenly weakened. And so at the last minute, if you like, the last gasp, of that cold Arctic air has been allowed to seep out mm. into our latitude. So it's, it's, it's no, no accident that the northeastern states and we are both having a cold spell right now. Uh, it's because it's been so mild, frankly, uh, for so long, Mike. Yes. Well, let's get back to basics, I suppose, if we are going to talk about how you predict the mm. weather. What, do you have models that you look at? Do you have a particular kind of uh, style of prediction that you do? Yeah, so I'm a quick history lesson, really. If you go back 100 years, uh, you know, all, all we had were, were people on the ground you know, with, a, with a thermometer and a little white box, and, and maybe they took pressure readings. They had a rain gauge, which was basically a bottle, which the rain fell into and measured right. it. Uh, and, that's, and that's all we had to go on, just what was going on on the surface. But if you actually think about the weather, it's not just what's happening directly above your heads. The weather actually is three-dimensional. It goes all the way up tens and tens of thousands of feet up towards the, the, the outer bounds of the atmosphere. So it, it's a three-dimensional fluid. You have to think of the, the atmosphere as a fluid. And I know we normally think of, of fluid as being water in the bath or mm. something. But actually the air acts like a fluid. And so it's all joined up. And, and the trick about forecasting the weather, Mike, is, is to kind of get a fix on the state of that fluid at time zero. And fortunately now... Uh, we don't just have people observing the weather at the surface. We also have people uh, and satellites and aircraft and weather balloons measuring the state of the atmosphere in three dimensions all the way up through the atmosphere. And so we, what we do is we say, okay, with all these measurements, we can, we can see what the, the state of the atmosphere is right now. And when I say the state of the atmosphere, I mean each molecule has a temperature, it has a pressure, it has a humidity uh, related to that molecule. And there are billions and billions of molecules. But if we say, well, approximately, uh, all these molecules have this temperature or this pressure right now, and they're moving at this speed. So if we, if we wind, you know, turn the handle and say, well, if that's what the state of the atmosphere is right now, what will it be like in five minutes' time? Mm. What will it be like in 10 minutes' time? And that's what these computer models basically do. They, they move the atmosphere on in iterations, in small steps of of about five minutes, all the way out to five days, to 10 days, to 30 days. And that's how we predict the weather these days, Mike. Now, of course, <clears throat> the further you go out, the less accurate our forecasts are. Yes. Why? The reason is because 
although we think we have a fix on the state of the atmosphere right now, there are errors. There are bound to be errors in those, those satellite measurements. There are bound to be errors in, in the weather balloon measurements. So if you've got errors right at the beginning, those errors get bigger and bigger and bigger the further out you look. So, yes. so that is why forecasts are most accurate over the next 24 hours or so. They get less and less accurate the further out you look. And are they less accurate, for example, than say, mainland America, partly because we're an island? Because I know from, from, from watching the Weather Channel in the US, I mean, they used to be able to predict literally to the minute when the rain was going to start falling uh, in, in whichever part of America you were in. And I used to find that absolutely fascinating because this was quite a few years ago. But we've, we've got a bit better at that here, but I wonder if it's because of our kind of rather, you know, tempestuous situation that we don't, um, we, we don't, we can't do that. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Mike. Uh, North America has, has for, for much of the year, it has a fairly sort of stable weather pattern. Mm. Uh, it, goes, it goes into summer mode and it goes into winter mode. Um, and that makes forecasting it a lot more predictable. You can see a weather front coming across the plains and you know that it's going to hit the eastern seaboard of the States and New York at 7.30. Yes. You know, and, and that's, that's fairly predictable. Now, what happens in this country uh, is that we don't, don't have that stability in the atmosphere because we are at the interface not only of the Arctic and the tropics but also between a sort of continental landmass on one side, mm. the whole of Europe, and, and the Atlantic Ocean on the other side. So we are at a crossroads, if you like, meteorologically, uh, and that makes predicting the weather that much harder. I would say that, wouldn't I, as a forecaster in the UK, but it, but it is true. And small errors can make big, big differences in the forecast, uh, despite the fact that we've got such a, you know, the UK is such a small land area. Actually, you can get huge contrast in weather, as we've seen in the last few days. Mm. Cast your minds back just a couple of days um, on Sunday afternoon, it was 25 degrees or near enough in Plymouth, and it was zero across the northeast of Scotland. And, and this is the sort of boundary of air masses that we have on a quite regular basis across the UK, which makes forecasting challenging, but also fun. Yeah, because we seem to get everybody else's weather. And I know that might sound a bit weird, <laughs> but, you know, we get the weather, you know, the hot plume comes yeah. up via the Sahara through Spain and it gets yeah. really hot for a while in the summer. We get the eastern, the beast from the east from Siberia that comes in. We get all the stuff that comes from America you know, the big, uh, you know, the, the hurricane weather yeah. and, and, and the kind of tornado type stuff. Um, and, and then even, I suppose, up in northern Scotland, you've got the Scandinavian weather. I mean, we seem to be right in the middle of it all. We are, and it never sticks around for long because, because the, the jet stream, which I mentioned earlier on, which is kind of a, the conductor rod of our weather, if you like, and wherever the jet stream goes, you tend to get errors of low pressure and high pressure and weather fronts. A lot, a lot of the weather action that we get is geared by the jet stream. And when I say jet stream, that's, that's a, a stream of very strong winds at the top of the atmosphere. And that tends to guide our weather systems further down through the atmosphere. And, and for quite a lot of the year, the jet stream is snaking right across us. And it's either rippling its way northwards or southwards, uh, you know, on a nearly daily basis. And, and that can make a big difference. The boundary on the southern side of the jet stream, you tend to have warm air. On the northern side of the jet stream, you tend to have cold air. Uh, and for a lot, of, a lot of the year, Mike, that jet stream is slap bang on top of us, which is why you have these contrasts, just as we had uh, at the weekend. And predicting those little ripples in the jet stream uh, is not easy, but it makes a big difference to what sort of weather we're going to get. Yes. So if we've got anybody listening now who's a sort of budding meteorologist thinking about mm. maybe a career in, in, in what you do, um, and they're, say, I don't know, 12, 13, is there a place they, they should go to sort of um, become more acquainted weather, weather with school. some of the stuff you do? <laughs> 
Really good question. And when I started, um, most most weather forecasts, most meteorologists who worked at the Met Office, for example, they had to have degrees in physics or computer science or mathematics because okay. the atmosphere is, is a very complicated thing. It's, it's really fluid dynamics, so you have to have a background in science. And that's still the case. Uh, many, of, many of the meteorologists in the Met Office, for example, have a background in, in science or physics or math. However, articulating the weather, presenting it to the public requires other skills, communication skills, uh, which sometimes scientists don't have. Mm. So actually to have a career in meteorology and weather forecasting, we now have a blend of, of people with various backgrounds, journalistic backgrounds, perhaps scientific backgrounds, perhaps comms backgrounds. Mm. And it, it is a real mix. So I would recommend it. I mean, I've had a great career in meteorology uh, and I came from a science background, but many of my colleagues are not scientists. Uh, they're journalists or right. they come from the background in communication. So okay. it's, it's a really, really good career to have. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed for sharing your knowledge with us. John Hammond there uh, from uh, Weather Trendies, a director there. And, and it's a fascinating business, I would say. And one of the things I suppose you can say with some surety is that you're never going to be out of a job uh, if you know how to predict the weather because everybody wants to know what the weather's doing. For heaven's sake, in this country, it's barely all we ever used to talk about. That was, of course, before coronavirus and before Brexit. Nobody talks about the weather anymore because it's just not interesting enough. However, what I can tell you is that Rishi Sunak, who is currently still answering questions in Parliament, uh, has announced that the furlough scheme, as we expected, will be extended until October, but there will be no changes to it until the end of July. So it will be 80% basically until the end of July. Uh, and then from August, part-time furloughing will be allowed. So again, something that came up first on this show is now being represented and is happening because the government have listened, the government have found that what we have told them to be interesting, what you have said to be interesting, and they have basically been agile enough to take it into account with their policy. And that's how journalism should work. It shouldn't be about, why aren't you furloughing people all the way till Christmas? No, no, that would be the first question that comes from old uh, uh, grumpy Koonsberg. Why haven't you furloughed people for two more years? You know, can I go and meet your mother? No, you can't. She's already married to my father. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.